This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Bible is a big book. That's what J.I. Packer told us in seminary in 1987, and he was right. Not only that, but it was written over 1,500 years in three different languages, in multiple settings, under multiple governments, by multiple authors to different people groups. Yet, it was all arranged by the sovereign providence of God, and the prophets and apostles who wrote Holy Scripture did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter wrote, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. At Second Peter one twenty one. Further, all those various authors and books had a focus, he explained. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That's First Peter 1, 10 through 12. Zach Keel is lecturer in practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and he's been teaching our English Bible survey course for 17 years. And out of that teaching has come a new book, The Unfolding Word, the story of the Bible from creation to the new creation. Zach is a graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, and the longtime pastor of the Escondido Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's an Old Testament scholar. He's married to Tova and the father of three children. He's co-author of Sacred Bond, Covenant Theology Explored, and he joins us now to talk about his new book, The Unfolding Word. Hi, Zach, and welcome back to Office Hours. It's good to be here. Well, we are glad that you are here, and I am glad that you have written this book. We were just talking off air about uh, Zach's new book, The Unfolding Word, The Story of the Bible from Creation to New Creation, available from Lexham Press. And there'll be a link on the webpage for this episode at wscal.edu slash office hours, where you can get this book from Lexham. Well, people are always, as I was saying, asking me for book recommendations. And your introduction that you wrote with Mike Brown to Covenant Theology filled one big need, and you've done it again with this volume, The Unfolding Word. Now, there are a lot of Bible surveys out there, and I'm, as I say, I'm very impressed with this one. But why another survey? What's different about this one? Well, you know, the Bible's a big book, and it's hard to survey it. And it's easy to become reductionistic, to become monotheme, to focus on the history and to lose the story or to focus on the story and lose the history. And as well as the uniqueness of, you know, covenant theology and the way we see the Bible and um, the importance for me of genre, the form of the Bible, the history, the poetry, the wisdom literature, the epistles, and, you know, something to bring those together in a way that meshes the story and the history 
and uh, appreciates the genre as well as then seeing just God's purpose uh, in covenant and redemption, salvation, to explain how the Bible connects. But, you know, as I say in the introduction, why are these parts even in Scripture? I think that can be a struggle for people. Why Leviticus? Why this weird chapter in Ezekiel? And to, at least in a introductory way, kind of start to answer those questions. One of the things I like about this book is that you are very honest about some of the challenges that the average Bible reader faces in uh, coming to grips with Scripture, understanding Scripture. I've got a passage here before me from your uh, introduction to the Revelation, which I thought was <laughs> really, I mean, not only amusing, but uh, very appropriate. So at whom are you aiming this book? I noticed, for example, that there are study questions discussion questions at the end of each chapter. So that gives us some clue. But tell us at whom you've aimed this book, because when people hear, the listener hears that this comes out of your 17 years of teaching a seminary course, they might assume, oh, well, this is going to be too difficult for me. And this book is written for someone else. I hope the audience is actually rather broad, meaning that maybe a brand new Christian who knows nothing about the scripture, this might be difficult because they don't know who Abraham is or the ark is or some of the basics. And, you know, this assumes that you have a basic, you know, understanding of the story. But, you know, in teaching the class, I've had um, a lot of community people take it, grandparents, lawyers, doctors, as well as seminary students. And um, it's been one in the feedback that it's able to hit for the seasoned Christian. This will refresh and remind you and fill in holes in your education of Scripture, hopefully, for the person who's a high school student who's, you know, still learning. I hope it's still accessible for them to come along and take that next step in their Bible education. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Zach Keel about his new book, The Unfolding Word, the story of the Bible from creation to new creation. In your experience as a Bible teacher, what do people most often misunderstand or miss about the big picture of the Bible? Well, I, you know, I think simply put, people struggle to see how it's Christ-centered. Or if they see Christ, they see Christ parachuted into the Old Testament in simplistic ways. And where Christ doesn't fit simply, then he's not there. There's not a more mature and deep understanding in the way God's story is focused on Christ, not in an allegorical way, but in a natural way, but also one that's not just tied to the three offices, prof, priest, and king, which is very important as we see Christ, but Christ and his work is reflected in the nitty-gritty of Sarah and Abraham and the way they interacted and in Judges and in all these other places that um, Christ's work is there in the story. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is just uh, what I call, you know, anachronism. I think we impose ourselves in modern culture back on the story. We tend to see Abraham or David as Americans of the 20th century and not realize that these are ancient people who had more in common with their neighbors than they do with us. And so I think opening it up and, you know, the analogy I use is time travel, allow us to do a little, you know, proper historical time travel to read them more sympathetically, read them not by projecting ourselves upon them, but let them speak to us in the time in which 
they lived. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, I can say, having heard your preaching uh, several times, many times, that you are a skilled expositor of Scripture in its original context, and yet... As you've walked us through some sometimes very difficult passages of Scripture, I'm thinking of a particular sermon from Leviticus where I remember saying to Mrs. Clark, who was sitting next to me, I said, what is he going to do with this? <laughs> and so it was sort of interesting, I'm, you know, watching. And by the end of the sermon, you had, not by any you know, tricks. You didn't pull any rabbits out of any hats, but you, through the course of a half hour sermon, you led us through the text so that when we really understood the text as it was intended to be understood in its original context, Mm -hmm. it led us to Christ. I mean, you touched on that, but I think that's a really important point that finding Christ in all of scripture is not a matter of pulling rabbits out of hats. And it's not a matter of tricks, Mm -hmm. because there are traditions, you know, with which you and I are familiar, where the Old Testament is read, for example, mainly in terms of character studies. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you'll see Christ typified here or there, but mostly it's about us. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit more about the difference between that way of reading the Bible and the way that you read the Bible in your new book, The Unfolding Word. Yeah, you know, I I mean, I think it's a noble desire to come to the text and say, you know, what's this got to teach me? And clearly God's Word teaches us. It's got moral advice, exhortations of faith and all those things. But in our setting, and I don't know if this is modern, but as moderns, we do this. When we ask that question, what does it mean for me? It becomes very self-centered at times, very pragmatic. You know, how does it help me to drop my kids off at sports practice or those sorts of things? And I think scripture kind of takes another route. I think scripture says this message and word is for you by making you look away from yourself, by making you forget yourself and just see the great God that you belong to. And by making it story-focused, by focusing on the characters of the story, which are ultimately God's characters in his story, looking outside of ourselves, I think we, one, grow more in awe of our Lord. Um, We realize that a lot of our small problems that we want answers for are just that small and don't need to worry about them that much. As well as then, I think, by focusing on what God's doing in history, that's when we actually see mature application and wisdom. And then Scripture does become helpful for us in our thoughts and our lives, but not in a cookie-cutter way, not in a simplistic moral way, but in a You know, I like the idea of wisdom in a more understanding, perceptive and wise way. So I think that's a really important point that we are part of the story, but we're not at the center of the story. And I noticed, too, as I'm uh, working through your book, we're talking to Zach Keel about his new book, The Unfolding Word. I noticed, too, that... uh, Your book is about two-thirds devoted to the Old Testament and about one-third devoted to the New Testament, which is about the proportion of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Why is it so important, then, for the Christian to understand the Old Testament well? And I ask this question knowing that you are something of an Old Testament scholar. (laughs) There's a big fat ball right down the middle for you to hit. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I mean, 
in one sense, we should remember that Jesus and Paul, the only Bible they really had was the Old Testament, especially Jesus and the, the disciples. I mean, the Gospels were taking shape in the early Pauline times. But, you know, I think that's important to realize that the Old Testament itself is a sufficient foundation for the New Testament. Sometimes we think that without the New Testament magic, we can't understand the Old Testament. But Jesus didn't act that way. He rebuked the Pharisees and said, Moses spoke of me. Why didn't you get it? Abraham saw me. Why didn't you get it? So we do need the New Testament. The New Testament gives us new insight and it reveals what is maybe opaque or difficult to see in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is sufficient in its revealing God and the Messiah and those sorts of things. And then Christ clarifies what is there in the Old Testament. But I mean, another way to think about this is Jesus and his cross, central to our salvation, the atonement, uh, righteousness, all those things. And yet, If you just had the New Testament, you wouldn't understand sacrificial theory. What Jesus dying is a sacrifice, what does that do? And so really, even though Jesus helps us understand the Old Testament, it's Moses and Leviticus that helps us fully understand what Jesus did on the cross. And you could, a lot of other examples for that. So in that sense, when Paul talks about resurrection or Jesus talks about the cross or baptism or a lot of these things, the New Testament authors are assuming we know the Old Testament, what these mean. And so it's really important for us to go back and we clearly, you know, are standing in as New Testament believers, but to really see the robust theology and content of the Old Testament as it speaks of Christ, his work, the church, the sacraments, and so on. Would you agree that uh, the New Testament teaches us, in a sense, how to understand the Old Testament? Certainly that the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the New Testament, but we have examples of the way that Jesus and the apostles interpreted and understood the Old Testament. And I ask that against the background of those traditions that tend to divide the Bible up and for whom the method by which we read the Old Testament is not so much the New Testament because they would tell us, well, we're not inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we can't do that. Therefore, we need to follow this method developed in the 19th century. And they all but say that. Yeah, clearly. I mean, I think as Paul, as Jesus or the gospel writers, refer to Old Testament as they show its fulfillment, as they exegete it. They're not just giving us one instance of, you know, how we understand Isaiah 7 or something. They're giving us a hermeneutic by which we read the Old Testament as the apostles, as our Lord read the Old Testament. And I think a good example of this, a commonplace, is Luke 24. Note that As Jesus explains the law of the prophets and the writings to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, note that Luke is clear that Jesus takes time. He spends time and goes through the whole Old Testament for us. I like to joke, I said, this is where Luke let us down. He should have wrote this sermon by Jesus. He didn't. He just summarized it. (laughs) Oh, for a transcript, that would have been... uh... Exactly. Why did Luke write this down? But in one sense, he didn't have to because... It's written down in Paul and the other epistles. And so Jesus there is teaching his apostles, not just specific fulfillments of Old Testament promises, but he's teaching them a hermeneutic. And so, and this is what the apostles wrote on. This is what their epistles, the book of Acts, the gospels are built upon, the hermeneutic that Jesus taught them on how to read the Old Testament. 
There are many important callings in this life. Physicians, nurses, police officers, and firefighters, they all save lives until Jesus returns. Everyone helped by a doctor, a nurse, a firefighter, or a police officer, however, will die. And then what? There is another calling that is vitally and eternally important. The ministry of the gospel. At Westminster Seminary, California, we've been educating men for pastoral ministry since 1980. Scripture says, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's John six sixty-six through 69. Jesus does have the words of eternal life, and he's commissioned his church and his ministers, his servants, to announce them to the world. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to pastoral ministry or to some other kind of service. We're grateful for your prayers and support as we seek to continue to fulfill our calling to help men and women fulfill their callings for Christ, his gospel, and his church. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking to Zach Keel, who is lecturer in practical theology, and he's written a new book called The Unfolding Word, the story of the Bible from creation to new creation. Well, the subtitle of your uh, book, Zach, leads us to think about creation and eschatology. So in the time that we have left, let's do that. You give a brief survey, for example, of two kinds of pagan creation stories, the Mesopotamian and the Egyptian. And by the way, listener, I found that section alone worth the price of this book. So this is not esoteric. This was the clearest presentation of this material that I have seen so far. So I found that extremely helpful as uh, Zach is helping us to read the Bible against its original context and background. So let's uh, think about that for a moment. How does knowing, and I'm going to say these words, so listener, bear with me. How does knowing the ancient Near Eastern background help us understand Genesis 1 through 3. Why is that so important? Well, you know, in one sense, it's important because we're trying to, by history and care, understand the first audience. And I try to show that really the original audience for the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books of the Bible, are Israel coming out of Egypt. And, um, you know, whatever... Abraham and Noah knew about creation is not written down for us, but we know what Lord revealed to Moses, and that's what we have in Genesis. And so they are living in a context where these mythologies about creation, about the gods, about the order of the world, uh, what we call cosmology, this is just in their general milieu. And um, they might not have known these specific myths or stories from Egypt or Sumeria, but they knew the general stuff. These things were spread around, and they knew the general ideas. And so as the Lord speaks to them, and I think this is one thing, these are stories, the ancient Near Eastern stories or myths. They are not just They're not science so much. They are theology. They're showing who is king, who is the Lord, the supreme God. Is it Marduk? Is it Ptah in Egypt? But these stories are saying this is the most supreme God. And over against them, we get Genesis 1 and 2, which tells us about the beginning of the world. But it does it not in a modern scientific way, per se, 
for us to know exactly in a videotape recording what happened, but in a theological way. So it's history, but it's theological to show that Yahweh is the supreme God. I mean, you have these slaves coming out of Egypt. They know the God of their fathers, but they worship small gods on the side. They don't know who God is. They need a theology 101 class. And Genesis, especially Genesis 1 through 3, is that theology class that's showing them who God is and his plan for them from beginning to end. And so they hear the beginning, they hear the fall, and they get a vision into the future of God's ultimate plan in history. I think that's really important that the listener understands and the Bible reader understands that when we're reading, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, Mm -hmm. spoken to nothing and out of nothing. As you say, this was intended to be delivered to people who are at the foot of Sinai. These are people who've been delivered out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. So Yahweh has done a marvelous thing, right? Parted the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. They've gone through on dry ground, defeated Pharaoh and his hosts, fulfilled that promise of redemption out of Egypt. They've been saved by God's sovereign grace. And now here comes this story. Now, let me tell you about the God who saved you. And this is how the world really works, how the world really is. And it's not like the sort of Mesopotamian soap operas, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And you walk us through that a little bit. So if the listener is familiar with the classical myths, you'll recognize some parallels. Yeah, mm-hmm. And uh, you contrast a little bit the Mesopotamian stories, which frankly, I found more interesting than the Egyptian stories. So I think that's really important to understand why the creation story was given and then how we ought to understand that now. Because in our setting, there are lots of competing stories Mm -hmm. about how the world came into being and consequently what it means and what our place in it is. Yeah, exactly. And I think that just understanding, you know, not so much the physics of our creation, as wonderful as that is, you know, but the theological ordering of creation. And uh, that's what we learned from Genesis. And I think it's so important for our faith, even as new myths of our world pop up or new ideas or new theories about our world, we're able to think about them more critically when we understand Genesis in its original context more clearly. The other end of the book, of course, is the Revelation. And it is a forbidding book. Mm -hmm. If you just sit down and and begin to read it, you know, chapters one through three are interesting and, you know, not too difficult. But when you get into chapter four, things start to get more complicated. And as you go through the book, and then, of course, there's the various different ways of reading the revelation and it can be bewildering. So you write, and I, I like this passage very much, which is why I want to quote it for the listener and for you. So you write on the surface Revelation is a puzzling, even troubling book. A butchered lamb with seven eyes talks. Horse-like grasshoppers with scorpion tails roam about. A two-headed dragon waits to swallow a newborn baby. It's no surprise that Revelation is so often misunderstood or ignored altogether. But then you go on to point out that the Revelation itself says that we should hear it, and that there's a blessing for hearing and reading the Revelation. So how does the listener get from trepidation to appreciation? Yeah, and, you know, kind of back to earlier, I think the secret to Revelation is the Old Testament. What we see with John doing here is no different from what Ezekiel and Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, and has done in some of the Psalms, is that he is speaking in Old Testament ways. 
but this imagery and those sorts of things. The other thing I think is important about Revelation is Revelation's not here to sort out our end times view so much. The New Testament makes clear what the end times are. The Lord's coming as a thief in the night, and uh, we wait, and he can come at any time. After the Pentecost, there is no further acts of redemption that we look for except the second coming. And so we get our New Testament eschatology from the New Testament, and Revelation isn't here kind of as a eschatological lesson book. Rather, it's really a book of comfort for the suffering church in a world that hates the church and wants to kill the church. It is a comforting to those suffering saints saying, you might lose your life. The world will hate you, but don't fret. Jesus has already won. The victory is yours. And in our suffering lives, it often looks like the church is losing. In our struggle with sanctification, it can feel like we're losing. And Revelation takes us outside of ourselves and says, no, that's part of bearing the cross. That's part of the endurance. But your Savior's already won. The victory's already his. So there's no if, and, or buts about the end of the story. Spoiler alert, Jesus <laughs> yeah. is conquered. And that's why it's sad when we turn this book into a weird sort of predicting code for reading headlines which is speculation and only tends to make people afraid versus what the book wants to be. Blessed are those who hear and read the book as a source of comfort and assurance. And so that's why I just love the book of Revelation and for to see such a poignant, helpful, encouraging book for the saints to see this used as speculation or ignored, uh, left on the shelf. is just sad. And just to, to bring it back and let it do what it's supposed to do. And that is glorify Christ and encourage us in the faith until the end. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You mentioned that the Revelation was written under the reign or during the reign of Domitian. Mm-hmm. And uh, the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the book locate the original context of the book. So just briefly, give us a sense of what have the Christians been experiencing prior to Domitian, for example, under Nero, but what was life like for the Christians in what we think of as Turkey in Asia Minor in the early 90s when the Apostle John is given this vision and then writes this down for us, as you say, for Mm -hmm. our encouragement? Well, I think what's unique about Domitian in the 90s, AD 90s, is that before this time, persecution of the church was sporadic and local. Uh, I think Paul in Acts and his mission journeys is a good example. He goes to Philippi and he gets thrown in jail. Then he goes to you know Thessalonica and, and he gets persecuted. Goes to Berea, no persecution. It's hit and miss. And so up to this time, really, the Christian church is kind of part of Judaism. Rome doesn't know what quite to do with it. They have certain peace in certain cities, and they're persecuted in other places. So under Nero, the Christians suffered under Nero for a time. Of course, they were just an excuse for Nero to blame somebody for a fire. They weren't actually, (laughs) they weren't persecuted so much for their faith. They were just uh, a scapegoat because people didn't like them. But under Domitian, there was a more empire-wide push 
again, it wasn't everywhere, but it was more empire wide. There was holes or safe spots where there wasn't persecution, but persecution increased. And part of this also is emperor worship. Emperor worship continued to grow through the first century. You know, it was smaller under Augustus, not really full emperor worship under Augustus. It became more after his death. And each emperor, emperor worship kind of grew and flourished. And so with the growth of emperor worship, more demanding on loyalty oaths to worship emperor, and then the church refusing to do that, there became more of a crisis. And so the persecution came from the synagogue. It came from the Roman Empire. And there in Asia Minor, we definitely have flare-ups. The church is used to suffering, but this was a really intense and heated up time for them. And so where the world was really flexing its muscles and hatred against the church is kind of the environment in which the book of Revelation is written. So there really is a terrific relevance of the apocalypse, the revelation for Christians, but not necessarily for the reasons that people often think, as you say, people have a tendency to read the revelation against the context of contemporary headlines, when in fact we need to be reading it differently. Mm -hmm. And yet, inasmuch as it is a book written for suffering Christians and to say to them, listen, I know you're puzzled about why things are going the way they are, but Jesus is ascended. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's in charge of all Mm -hmm. this. None of this is happening outside of his control, and he is coming again, and you need to rest Mm -hmm. in that. And as we think about, for example, Christians in China, where it has become, Mm -hmm. again, really uh, difficult, or if you're a Christian in Lagos, Nigeria, being chased Mm -hmm. by Islamists. And you and I know people to whom this has happened. Or if you're a Christian in Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. or any number of places, or in Iraq or Iran, these are all places where, and maybe perhaps us a little bit now, who knows how things will go, those people certainly can read the Revelation and say, yes, we understand about the dragon coming after the newborn baby. Mm -hmm. And you begin looking forward to the return of Christ in a renewed way, and you find comfort in the imagery. So last thing, you give some principles Mm -hmm. for reading the Revelation, which I found helpful. Walk us through that briefly, just to encourage the listener. And again, we're talking to Zach Keel about his new book, The Unfolding Word. If you're looking for a volume to help you understand the big picture of the Bible, but also to connect that to the details of Scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments, this is a terrific way to do that. So the principles for reading and understanding what is often a difficult book, The Revelation. Yeah, I mean, the principles I out there are several. These are kind of introductory ones. But, you know, the first is the main theme that Jesus has conquered. To keep that basic thesis, that's with all, you know, even when it gets weird and we're like, what's going on? That thesis is still crucial. Two numbers, I think um, we just need to remember that all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. It doesn't mean that they don't have maybe a, a literal referent in the text, but the overall meaning of the number is symbolic. So the seven spirits or the seven horns, these are, you know, images of perfection or completion or um, in the case of the dragon, divine imitation in a profane way. The next is, and this is the main thing I focus on, is what I call the portraits, that the book of Revelation is a series of portraits of the church age between Christ's first coming and second coming. And so I use the analogy of if you're in a art museum, And sometimes you'll see a scene where there's a farmhouse in a painting. And one painting shows the farmhouse from the south. 
and during the summer and the next one from the north during the winter. And you've got four or five of those from different times and different angles. And what that does is it shows you the same farmhouse from different perspectives to deepen your understanding. And so what we have here is these portraits, which are what we call recapitulatory. They go back and tell again what that's already happened. And uh, they show us this is Christ's first coming. This is what he's doing in the middle. And this is his last coming. And uh, the perspective and the angle and the scene can focus. But that's the basic image. And I lay those out, which I think is crucial to kind of then seeing that we can't date Jesus' second coming by this because these are just pictures that recapitulate, show the same thing, you know, numerous times through the book. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.